millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Renee Rodriguez, author of Amplify Your Influence, Transform How You Communicate and Lead. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Renee Rodriguez to talk about his book, Amplify Your Influence, Transform How You Communicate and Lead, published by Wiley. Renee Rodriguez is a best-selling author, keynote speaker, leadership advisor, and speaker coach. For nearly 30 years, Renee has researched and applied behavioral neuroscience to solve some of the toughest challenges in leadership, sales, and change. Through his keynotes, boot camps, workshops, and proprietary Amplify course, his company has trained over 100,000 leaders from companies including Coca-Cola, 3M, Wells Fargo, Cargill, Nestle, and Microsoft. And interesting fact, his mother was a former nun. Renee, congratulations on Amplify Your Influence, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. I thought you were saying congratulations for making it out alive with a nun as a mother. Yes, yes. So that's so interesting that your your mother was a, a nun, and by any chance, is she the person that The Sound of Music was about? How do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> That actually sounds like her voice, actually. Really? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And another interesting fact that I learned from your book is that your grandfather, who was uh, living in Cuba, uh, grew up there, I suppose. Uh, He wrote, I guess this was in the late 40s or the 50s, he wrote a letter to President Harry Truman and said, I'd like to come to the United States and I'll join the military. Is is that right? Yeah. It was, uh, if he he said, get me out of this country, I'll come and fight for yours. Wow. And that was before the Castro regime? That was right as the Cuban Revolution was beginning. Interesting, interesting. Wow. Well, I wanted to quote from a couple of segments at the beginning of the book, a couple different sections from the introduction. You write, this book uncovers the hidden drivers that shape our decisions and behaviors. In these pages, you will see how susceptible we are to the influence of others. You will learn how people make purchases and decisions subconsciously as a result of the stories others share and how sequence 
the order of things matters more than substance. And continuing, imagine the feeling of having people listen intently to your business proposals, laugh hysterically at your jokes, and be captivated by your ideas. That ability to capture attention gives us the opportunity to share ideas so they can be heard. That is the feeling of influence, the feeling of significance, of having an impact on the world around us. And continuing on, uh, influence is the most powerful skill for success when we learn to use it properly and ethically. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle was the first to recognize this power of persuasion and how to harness it. I'll delve into the elements of what later became known as Aristotle's rhetorical triangle, along with two other forgotten motivational appeals and why his wise words from more than 2,000 years ago matter even more today in any discussion on the power of influence. This is your playbook to maximize your personal and professional influence. It's a journey we will take together with the goal of learning how to become a better leader and influencer in all you do. And then uh, later down the page three, influence is about understanding how our brains and those of our audience process information. When we understand that process, our work, life, and business become easier. So do communications and interpersonal relationships, branding, messaging, conflict resolution, selling, and basically anything that involves human beings with brains working together to achieve a common goal. And then uh, page five, by the end of your journey through these pages, you will have a checklist to help prepare for every presentation or influence opportunity. Best of all, the checklist will become part of who you are. You will automatically begin to ask yourself those questions, follow those sequences, and reap the benefits of powerfully communicating messages with new levels of impact. And then there was one line from uh, page 14 that I, I just loved. Every good sales professional knows that purchasing decisions are made with emotion and defined with logic. That's such common knowledge that there's a danger it's ignored. But think about it. The reason people buy is based on the one thing business professionals don't like to discuss, emotion. We need to stop, recognize, and begin to master this powerful and essential part of human existence. So I want to jump to the very last chapter of the book for the first question, Renee, and ask you to explain the difference between influence and manipulation. Ah, probably one of the most common questions that we get. And I think that one thing you have to think about is when it comes to influences that every human being uses every tool, every avenue they have to create influence. And influence is about, you know, somehow influencing the world around us to make our lives easier, whether it's to sell something or to go to the restaurant we want, watch the movie we want to go, go see. And so the big difference between the two is that influence, and in, well, let's define uh, 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 manipulation. Manipulation would be defined as influence and persuasion used to an extreme. That's part one. To an extreme. Part two, at the expense of someone else. And uh -huh. part three, typically underhanded and not visible or seen by the, by the other party. So it's a, there's an extreme nature to it. There's an expense to someone. And it's done underhandedly. Uh -huh. Versus manipulation it's the use of cre the creative use of, of of language to be able to common or creatively communicate an idea in a way that people will listen to and act upon and done for the benefit of both parties like for example you know somebody that and it's done transparently like you know there's there's nothing hidden about uh, influence in the, especially in today's world, transparency isn't even a choice anymore. You know, you can pretend that things aren't transparent, but we have to be transparent in how we are. But 
the, the ability to say, you know, imagine somebody that's, that's, you know, an alcoholic or somebody that's not healthy and they're not doing the right things. You should use every bit of influence that you have to persuade them to change. Mm-hmm. And that should be overt and, and there's no need for it that way. So influence can be a very, very positive thing, but just like any tool of power, it can be misused as well. So I wanted to set the stage here to make it real clear. This is not a book about manipulation, <laughs> which is why obviously you, you mentioned that in your book. But let's go back to the beginning now and uh, tell us how influence skills and techniques are like a bag of golf clubs. You know, the, the big question that we get is, so Renee, what's the best influence tool? And I'll ask the same question. I say, well, what's the best club to use on a golf course? Mm-hmm. And some people say the driver, you know, seven iron, it can use it for anything. Well, I hit my pitching wedge the best. I said, well, all right, so you like the driver. I said, what if you're on the putting green? The real answer, and somebody will chime in typically and say, well, it depends on the shot, where you are on the course and the conditions you're facing. And that's the same when it comes to influence tools. And too often we get used to our favorite tool, our favorite uh, methodology or process, whether it be a certain way of storytelling or whether it be a certain tone of voice or loudness and you know volume. And we think that it applies to everything, but it doesn't. One of the things you learn in this book is that we teach you, you know, the typical influence uh, training or influence learning goes into an offensive, what I would call offensive strategy. How, what can I do? What can I say? How can I stand my body language to be more persuasive and influential? But the first thing we do is we say, okay, you can learn all those things, but if your audience isn't ready to hear the message, if they're highly stressed, if they're distracted, they're not paying attention. If they haven't even clicked on your link, then none of it matters. So you have to capture attention and you have to prepare the audience. And it comes down to this concept of, would you plant a seed in cement? And the answer is obviously no. You'd have to first till the soil, get rid of the cement, and get the soil ready to be receptive of the seed. And the seed is our idea. But so often we plant ideas and we communicate ideas to an audience that just isn't ready. Mm-hmm. And we think we're communicating. I think, did you have the George Bernard Shaw quote in here? Or the, the, one of the great uh, misperceptions about communication is that it's actually happened. The illusion that it was that it happened, yes. Yeah, yeah. The communication illusion, so powerful. <laughs> yeah. So I want to go to um, page 22. You write, when we understand how the brain works and why, life and business can become easier. <laughs> Over the past 27 years of applying the neuroscience and psychology of how the brain works and in leadership, communication, change, selling, and influence, I've learned certain fundamental truths that apply across industries in life. Talk about that. So – when we think about influence and how it applies, it is the one common thing that we all have. It, whether you know you're a police officer, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a, a salesperson, a branding expert, a CEO, HR specialist, and we all need to influence behavior in some way, shape, or form. And we're an extremely distracted world. And so, right now, <clears throat> one of the things that I've tell people is that we're not in, anymore in the information age because information is available. And it's, it's a, there's such an influx and, and over stimulation of information. But the question is, what are we going to do with it? And how do I even capture someone's attention? I may have great ideas and great information. Like, like that's why I said your podcast is doing great. And, and the reason why I said congratulations, that's not easy is because there's so much noise out there. Mm-hmm. There's so many podcasts out there. And for one to do well really means that you've done a lot to capture attention, add value in a way that's long-term that people want to share and come back to. And so, well, the, the secret is it's all about the guess. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> the less I speak, the more people listen. No, I'm kidding. But. Well, the other secret to this is that our guests, people like me, don't exist without people like you creating platforms. And so <laughs> okay. that's that's the beautiful nature of it. Like I, I was at a I was at a keynote last week, and somebody said, "Thanks so much for showing up." And I said, "Thank me. How about thank you?" I go, "Do you know how silly I look up there on stage with no one in the audience?" And I said, "So this is a mutual agreement." And so I one, thank you for coming, and my goal is to add as much value as I can. Well, and it's you know what else, Renee? Just to just to add to that, in the beginning of the book, you talk about how having an audience is a privilege. And that really resonated with me. Absolutely. It is a privilege. And I think that this concept, and it kind of plays into the concept of ethos from Aristotle, it's our credibility and our character. And But our credibility and our character isn't owned by us. And we think it is. It's owned by our audience. Yeah. And I, I'm, earlier I mentioned Aristotle and his rhetorical triangle. Can you walk us through the three elements of the triangle as well as the two additional often overlooked appeals. I, I really found that interesting. Yeah. So Aristotle was the first person to talk about argumentative thought and persuasion 2000 years ago. And he came up with, you know, and this was in writing plays and in discourse and in writing. And there's all sorts of elements back then that were happening. And what he, what he said was that there are three things that need to happen, what psychologists would call motivational appeals that need to be in place for us to be persuaded. And the first one was, and it's like a three-legged stool. The first one was uh, ethos, and I, I talked about it. ethos is your credibility, it's your character. It's also the essence of who you are. The easiest way to understand ethos is through its opposite. For example, if I were to do a course on the menstrual cycle and the challenges that women go through. Mm -hmm. Now, men might be like, wow, that's interesting, I want to learn. Women would look at me going, why in the world are you <laughs> giving that class, Renee? Yeah. You know, I've never had a menstrual cycle, so where's my credibility? Mm -hmm. It's out of character for me. There's no ethos for me. And so... It's the personal trainer that telling you how to lose weight who's fat and out of shape. Mm -hmm. It's the person who's broke telling you how to make money. It's the person that's the social media guru that has 48 followers. <laughs> it's those, there's the lack of ethos is really evident. And, you know, so when we think about it, but ethos isn't the only thing. Credibility isn't the only part. Mm -hmm. It comes down to also you need pathos, which is the emotional appeal. Like a doctor has ethos, you know, a doctor says, you know, Hey, you need to lose weight and exercise more. And because they didn't have any ethos or any, or excuse me, any pathos, no emotional connection, there's no drive for behavior change. And so we go, great doc. Thank you. Like I'll Mr. Start Spock next week. on Star Trek. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Exactly. So there's no emotional appeal. And so we don't act. And so I say, thanks doc. I'll start next week. And so when we look at the, the emotional side of things, that's where we buy into things, but it's also where we, where our behavior is is driven from. And so I have to have an emotional connection to something. There's got to be a passion involved here. There's got to be, you know, in, you know, somebody says, for example, I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> and so the words, the content were, I'm excited to be here, but the delivery was saying the opposite, mm -hmm. you know, versus I'm really excited to be here, Douglas. Thank you for having me on versus I'm really excited to be here, Douglas. Thank you for having me on. Which is what I normally hear from my guests, but please continue. <laughs> I highly doubt that. And so, but the, you know, there's the, the content and delivery that are involved in ethos and pathos. And then you have the third one is logos. Logos is strictly content. It's the logical appeal. It's got to make logical sense in what's going on. And so if I believe you because of the credibility is there, I'm emotionally connected. I want to act and I understand the plan, the logos. Now I can be persuaded and I can act on it. And so those three pieces come together and you know, you think about somebody who says, okay, they've got ethos and they've got logos. Man, you're credible and the plan makes sense, but I'll start in a month. 
there's no there's no reason to start. But let's say they've got pathos. I'm emotionally engaged, and they got logos. The plan makes sense. But but who are you? <laughs> and so the same is true. Like I might have ethos and pathos. Where God, you're credible, and it makes sense. But there's no logos. It's like. Well, what's the plan? What's the next step? How do I take action? Oh, I don't even know. Like, Oh, and that all wears off and we move on. It's like when, you know, from a marketing perspective, when you make buyer friction, friction, too many clicks to dig into, you know, you get somebody super excited, you create this great video and somebody's giving you a testimonial and people are running your website to buy or a landing page to buy. And there's, it's too confusing. So the logos is out of place mm-hmm. and that creates friction. And then people just get frustrated and move on. Kairos comes from the, from the Greek word chronology. And it's about timeliness and the era that we're in. You know, if the word zeitgeist, if you've ever heard that word, it's about the era. Oh, right. Like when you use the word stewardess. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, this was 18 years ago. I'm in a, I'm giving, uh, I was on a flight and then we got, we we landed, lost hydraulics. We crashed in another plane. I went flying into the front and and I was telling the story at a keynote and I said, the stewardess came running up and down the aisle and she's bleeding from the face and this really, really intense story. And two young ladies came up to me afterwards and said, Renee, that was an incredible talk. We loved everything, but you lost us at stewardess. Ugh. We are flight attendants. And they turned around and they stormed off. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, you know, that's all they got out of it. But then I was like, you know, hold on a second. That's my mistake. I didn't grow in my language. I was wrong. I used an outdated term. I had literally a client a few, it was a few months ago saying, you know, Renee, uh, you know, I'll have my secretary give you a call. And I was blown away. I mean, that, that, there's, that somebody would even think to even still use that word. Uh-huh. And I said, I said, hey, the 70s called. They want their word back. So I'm like, you got to get, get, get it together. And we're, we're, in a, we're in a hyper chirosensitive world right now. Mm-hmm. You know, language does matter. <clears throat> and the people are very, very, very sensitive to what's going on. And r- the thing is, as a speaker, as an influencer, as a salesperson, as a leader, we don't have the luxury of being frustrated by it. If, if I'm trying to influence into a certain environment and I use the wrong words, I have lost my audience. Yes. Now, some people say, well, you should stay true to what you believe. It's not about staying true. It's about how do I maximize my influence with a certain audience? Yes. And, you know, if I use a wrong word that I know is heavily triggered in the media right now because there's a lot of emotion, why would I use that word in, in, in the context that totally distracts from, the, from a business transaction? Right. It's like stepping on a rake. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's exactly. an unforced error. And it's, it's just unnecessary and it's not going to accomplish anything. It's like, you know, it's like going to Facebook and putting your political beliefs on Facebook. You're not going to create any sort of structured, positive dialogue. Yes. What you're going to create is you're going to create ad- animosity from the people that don't agree with you. And you're going to create bonding with the people that you do. There's no leadership in that. No, absolutely. And that's why I left Facebook about a year ago. Well, let's end with Telos. You see what I did there? I like that. Yeah, you did. I think that's good. So telos or telos, depending on how you pronounce it, is 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 literal translation in Greek for end. And when you look at the end, it's really the purpose of your presentation. And what happens when people lose sight of telos is that they begin to start rambling. And so having these words to say, we need, we need to know the end, the focus, the purpose of your talk. It's got to be timely and within the current era that we're in. And of course you need to make sure that people know who you are, the ethos and credibility is there through delivery. So you show up, you know, clean, you show up in, in a good way. You don't, you know, you don't show up with bad breath. You, you wear deodorant, you know, it's like a good way to kill your ethos is have bad breath. So true. TV advertising is a 
powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flipped the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. There's a, a really great chapter on, on sequence, and I, I just wanted to quote from a couple things here and then ask you to walk through a couple things here because it's it's really very helpful, and I think it's something that we forget. So uh, you write, there's a sequence to help people process information and, more importantly, accept ideas. Spouting logic, data, and facts alone doesn't cut it, yet we still gravitate to that behavior. And then you write, sequence is positioning your message and delivery of a message, story, or presentation in a way that aligns with the biological and neurological makeup of how our brains are wired to receive it. And then the wrong sequence is one of the biggest mistakes people make when they communicate. Could you walk us through those four steps of, uh, to influence in that chapter? Yeah. And so the four steps are really founded on, a ver- on an old model, brain model, that's actually uh, literally been debunked. When I say literal, there, there are things that are what we call you know, literally inaccurate, but metaphorically accurate especially when it comes to understanding science. And for many years, you've heard the lizard brain, you've heard the reptilian brain, and sort of the primitive sides of us, and you know, the, sort of the sequence of how the brain works. And that was a center of, of my study for many years in application. And then, you know, mid-90s, that, that study was sort of, that, that theory, what they call the triune brain theory, was debunked. But it still serves as a, a fantastic metaphor for understanding the sequence of how we process information. And what it says is basically that, that we have three different parts of our brain that dictate our behavior depending on how much stress or, or that we're under. And as as information flows through us, we have to look at how the brain processes it. And there's a, a very specific sequence. And you know, so for example, if you're walking down the street and see something out of the corner of your eye, you're going to flinch, move out of the way, and then you're going to look to see what it is. You're going to perceive, move, then think. It's not perceive, think, move. If you were to have perceive, think, move, you would not live as long. You'd be like, <laughs> and, and if you think about it, you go, I perceive something out of the corner of my eye. Turn and face it. Let's see if it's dangerous or if it will injure me. And it hits you right in the face and you break your face. Mm-hmm. But instead, you see something out of the corner of your eye, you move out of the way, and then you look and you realize it was just a leaf blowing in the wind. So it was illogical, but it was an unconscious event to keep you alive. Mm-hmm. And so as we look at you know, those different elements, the reptilian brain is that first part of the brain to develop. It's in charge of all your autonomic functions, your breathing, your heart rate, your digestion, all the things that keep you alive. And what the theory says is that it's the first part of the brain that we meet. So it doesn't have any language centers. It doesn't have the ability to process information. It's not innovative. And so you know, if you ever met somebody and they say their name and you walk away and you cannot for the life of you remember what in the world they just said. 
or their name. That is because we're not processing, you know, new relationships. We're, we're sizing people up asking one question is, am I safe? Mm -hmm. And that question of safety is the first question. And now the study goes into, you know, not because we're not in physical danger, even though our brains were designed to protect us from physical danger measured through stress level. The stress level component is what determines if something is going to be stressful. And so when we look at, you know, how the reptilian brain works in how we approach things, that's the first angle that we're going after. So one of the best bits of advice I ever heard as it relates to sales is always make the customer feel safe. And there's so many times when people don't think about, does that prospect feel safe? So let's go to the next one. Do you care about me? Yeah. And the safety piece comes down to actually understanding psychological safety because psychological safety is the ability to someone to feel like they can share their ideas without being ridiculed, or I can have a conversation with you without you taking my money, Mm -hmm. without you pressuring me into doing something I don't want to do. So psychological safety would be the piece. And my favorite part of the book is that it actually has an index. So you can actually search these terms in the book from the back. It's like old school Google search for a paperback book or a hard copy book. But the next part of the brain is the limbic system. The limbic system is also known as the mammalian brain. It's it's known as the part that, you know, reptiles don't have this piece. Uh, reptiles have that, but reptiles don't have a mammalian brain or the limbic system is the ability to have emotion. It's also the, the, the gateway to long-term memory. It also houses our value system. And so when we think about the power of this brain, when we talk about this part of the brain, there are actually 35,000 times more neurons that fire from the emotional centers of the brain when we make decisions versus the logical centers. And so this, this is at the core of the audience here that is in sales and marketing and influence. When we want people to act, that's what we say, that people make decisions based on emotion. Mm-hmm. That's happening in the limbic system. And if there's 35,000 times more, remember there's trillions of neurons in our brain. Imagine how powerful this part of the brain is. And I tell people all the time, think about, you know, have you ever seen somebody in love with the wrong person? And have you ever tried to talk them out of it? It's like a freight train going down one direction or talk somebody out of their church. Try Uh that. See how well that works for you. Uh Because that part of the brain is just ingrained and locked in. Or their political beliefs like your comment about Facebook. Yeah, it's it's the it's the it's the po- political discussion. What happens there? It's the it's uh, talking about Android versus Apple. I mean, just very <laughs> logical conversation there. Yeah. Of course, not. <laughs> and so, it's a very difficult place to engage, but it's also a very powerful part of who we are to get things done. It's what joins churches. So I mean, it's very loyal. It's what where we fall in love, and it's where hate is stemmed from. So it's it's a powerful part of who we are. And then uh, the third one was, is this engaging? Yeah. And so the limbic system asks that question of, do you care about me? Remember, reptilian would say, am I safe? Right. And then do you care? Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, the move between the two, it moves from the selfish to the team. Like, am I safe? It's about me. Mm -hmm. Now, as I evolve, I can think about us. Do you care? The relationship we have. Not just, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? No, I can think about us and uh, there. And so the third part is the neocortex. Now we can think about abstract ideas, get creative. This is the part of the brain that has language centers that would make us human. And so now we can think about it, which would be, is it engaging? Is it interesting? Is it capturing my attention? Because I've got all this brain power. And if you're not capturing my attention, I'm going to go put it on something else. Mm-hmm. This part of the brain is what we're trying to get access to. 
when we're at work. We want people to bring the creativity, the innovation, the problem solving, and all of these things, the thinking and the critical thinking to the workplace. But if we are in reptilian brain or nimbic, we don't feel safe, we don't feel valued, all that beautiful brain power just doesn't get brought to work. Right. You're right. Blood flowing freely to the brain allows neurons to fire and engage with new ideas while painting pictures of possibility. This can't happen under stress. <laughs> Continuing, the, the inspiring part. Is this inspiring? Is this aligning with our, with our values? Yeah, so and uh, so the the last part of the brain to develop is this thing called the prefrontal lobe. It's in the front of the brain, part of the neocortex, and they call it the executive center or the CEO of the brain. It's what looks at our resources and makes decisions and makes predictions on future. It's also a future simulator, which is kind of fun. And so, what do we mean by that? And so, it, it's able to f- simulate experiences and create visceral responses based on that to decide if we do it or not. And it happens instantly. For example. I'll give you an example. Pretend right now that Ben and Jerry's came out with a new ice cream called liver and onions. Mm -hmm. Would you want to try it? (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. Most people think about that. Now, here's the thing. Well, not if it tasted like that, but I wouldn't even want to try it. Yeah, exactly. But so most people, we've never had that kind of ice cream before, but your brain goes out into the future, puts all those ingredients together in the, in based on past experiences and gives us a, and that's a virtual proverbial taste of it. And then says, ugh, that's disgusting. And it happens instantly <laughs> yeah. to us. Instantly. Yeah, and I, I, it could probably be chocolate ice cream, but if they told me it was liver and onions, I would probably think, oh, no, this doesn't taste like chocolate. It tastes like uh, liver and onions. Absolutely. Well, let's jump to the uh, the formula, You know, the, the really the, the backbone of the book, uh, frame, message, and tie down. And uh, talk, talk, we'll talk about frames. Let me quote from a couple things that just really got me fired up here. You write, in communication, either the speaker provides the frame or the listener will provide one subconsciously. And then you write, when communicators don't set the stage or lay out a frame of reference for their audiences, that audience will fill in the narrative with their own ideas based on their experiences. And uh, the battle for attention, influence, and even financial resources is really a matter of whose frame is perceived as the most credible, compelling, and valuable. Can you explain the, this, this idea of frames? Yeah, so frames are constructs of reality. Now, that, let me explain that a little bit. We know things through frame of reference. And when we don't have a frame of reference for something, it's a disruptive. Imagine the first time you went to Uber. And somebody says, well, you just open up this app on your phone and you type in an address and some random car picks up and will pick you up and take you somewhere. Well, is it safe? Well, I don't have to pay them. What do you mean I don't have to pay them? So there's no frame of reference. It's just disruptive and it's there. And so that's one example of frame. An example, another example of frame is, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, and I'll ask you, give me the first word that comes to mind when I say used car salesman. Uh, Plaid sport coat, sleazy. Plaid sport coat and sleazy. And so we always get sleazy, slimy, slick, you know, pushy, aggressive, all that kind of stuff. And and so what happens is if I start in the here and now, meaning I just say, here's this, to understand and construct the reality of this used car salesman, you have to go back to your past mm-hmm. and you have to construct a frame. And that frame then helps you understand what's in front of you. That's why we call them constructs of reality. And so now I just said used car salesman and you just constructed a plaid sport coated sleazy douchebag. I think you said something like that, or mm-hmm. maybe not. Maybe I'm projecting that you said that. Yes. But I, so, clearly I, I made you think of that word, but go ahead. <laughs> exactly. And so if I were just to speak, you know, in whatever industry, hi, I'm in sales or hi, I'm in, and you fill in the blank. Marketing. It triggers. 
Yeah, marketing. It triggers frames of reference. Or in yeah. some companies, I'm in compliance. Oh, here we go. I'm a lawyer. Oh, gosh, right? You know, so it triggers those frames of reference. And the question is, is what kinds of frames of reference? And if I don't provide the frame of reference, if I don't provide the frame, then it forces my audience to create their own. So they're either pulling from my frame or their past experience, period. And so to finish it, right? So you said sleazy, but you know, this goes back to the story of my grandfather that we started with. Mm -hmm. You know, so my grandfather was in Cuba and saw the Cuban revolution was about to begin. And so he wrote a letter to the president of the United States saying, if you get me and my family out of this country, I will come in and fight for yours. Somehow that letter made it to the right person. And they pulled my, my grandfather out, my grandmother, my aunt, and my mother. And he served in the American armed forces for eight years. After his service, he landed in the quote unquote American dream, Homestead, Florida. And if you know anything about Homestead, Florida, that really, it's not an American dream. It's, it's not much for employment. It's really not much going on at all. And so his, his American dream was limited to how far he could walk. But there was somebody who believed in my grandfather, saw what he did for this country, and got him into an older vehicle. And that older vehicle allowed him to extend his reach by 50, you know, 25, 75, 100 miles, changing the trajectory of his life, my, my mother's life, and ultimately my life. Mm-hmm. And that person who believed in my grandfather was a used car salesman. Let's talk about messages. What are examples of the the messages in your formula and what what makes for a good message? I know that question sounds like what's the meaning of life, but it's a very big very good part of the book. It's very very similar. I mean, but it's you know, you set the frame for the purpose of delivering a message. And so the messages are endless. There's value propositions, there's requests, calls to action. There's there's a, a message of understanding, there's a learning point. There's a message of I care. There's a message that I love you. There's a message that you're wrong. There's a message of apology. There's a message is whatever I'm trying to communicate to you. And the frame is what derives and shapes the meaning of the message. And so it also ensures that you don't run into the risk of somebody misframing what you're trying to say and what you're trying to do. And so all of those aspects play together so that people can actually hear my message with a clear conscience in the way that I wanted them to hear it. And- as it relates to storytelling, there's a great quote in here where you write, use a story to communicate a message. Don't use someone's time to tell them a story. Can you explain that? Yeah. So <clears throat> we all know people that are amazing storytellers. We also know people that love to tell stories. So now both are telling stories. One we love, <laughs> the other one we hate. <laughs> and so the big difference goes down into step three in the, in the formula, which is what we call the tie down. Mm-hmm. And a tie down answers the most important question of what this means to you. And so when we're thinking about the storytellers that we love, and I tell this, you know, right now we say, people don't care about your story. What they care about is the moral of the story, the lesson that came mm. with it. Mm-hmm. What's the value of it? And the person that tells stories with no moral, no lesson, no value in it, they just love to tell stories and they're wasting my time to tell me a story. But we need to think about stories as something that we use. They're a tool. So use this tool of storytelling to deliver a message of value. Don't waste my time just to tell me a story. <laughs> yes. You're right. A challenge with storytelling is recognizing that the story is not the end goal. Oh, my goodness. It brought to mind this uh, neighbor of mine <laughs> who, who means well, but if he buttonholes you, uh, he wants to talk at you for for 90 minutes. So you mentioned the tie-downs. Let's talk about that. You, you write, because I have your attention, 
doesn't mean I have influenced you yet. Influence yes. happens through the tie down. Um, exp- explain the uh, say more about the uh, the tie down. This is I'm wondering if this is the most overlooked part of a lot of communication. It, to me, is what I've come to find out is, is the most because okay. we assume people understand what it means to them. Mm-hmm. We assume that my value proposition that they're going to connect all the dots and they're going to see what the business case is, or they're going to understand that. When I'm doing this, they're going to understand what it's for. I mean, there's so many things that we just assume. And so if you can add that phrase, what this means to you is, is this. Yes. If you can always answer that question over and over and over again. And the more you understand your audience and your customer, the more tailored you can tie it down. And so framing and storytelling does not create influence. That's mm-hmm. a big myth. Mm-hmm. Framing and storytelling are the means by which we achieve what we're all here to learn, which is influence. Yes. You're right. The tie down is the clearest communication of value to your audience. And uh, another great line was a story, statistics, or quotes without a tie down is like a joke with no punchline. <laughs> it's unfinished and doesn't add value. For maximum impact, we need to consistently speak in terms of what our message means to our audience. Unfortunately, many people lose sight of that. The tie down is not necessarily a call to action, although both are closely linked. And there's a a really, really helpful page, well, at least it was helpful for this reader, on page uh, 136 and 137 where you show uh, statistics with no tie-down, and then you have statistics with a tie-down. And let me just read one. You write, 97% of buyers search for their homes online. Now, that's a statistic with no tie-down. And here's one with a tie-down. 97% of buyers search for their home online. If you are a real estate agent and you don't have an online presence, you risk losing your clients to those who do. <laughs> and so try now try this once. Transition those two phrases. And what that means to you is this. Yes, yes. Try read it again and let the audience listen because it's such a powerful phrase. 97% of buyers search for their homes online. And what this means to you is if you are a real estate agent and you don't have an online presence, you risk losing your clients to those who do. And on the actually on the next page you talk about you have examples for how a mortgage loan officer or a real estate agent or a consumer what this means to you is such an important uh, thing to include. Let me ask you one thing about something your one of your college professors said. He shared some profound advice about communication, quoting here, in all his years of counseling married couples, he said the best advice he could give to us his students was assume nothing and communicate everything. Talk about what he meant there. Oh yeah. Dr. John Burry, one, one of um, my favorite psychology teachers. <clears throat> and what he was saying was, you know, and this goes back into this whole concept of narrative and management and managing what we call the narrative gap and frames is that most of life is an assumption. Unfortunately, like we, we, we assume things because there's no way that we can understand and perceive everything. And so we're constantly making assumptions. But in relationships, those assumptions have a source and they typically come from our past experiences. And if I've got a negative past experience or if somebody, I'm used to people cheating on me or lying to me and something happens and I don't ask, I just assume I'm going to pull from a source based on my past negative experiences to fill in the narrative of what really happened and the meaning of which it happened. And so if we can take on the role of saying, I'm going to assume nothing but communicate everything. So instead of assuming, I'm just going to ask. That's the whole goal. That's great. I want to jump to uh, a later section and talk some more about Renee Rodriguez. Page 166, you say, at age 18, I listened to my first sales training cassette tape from the late Zig Ziglar. 
He said something extremely simple and profound. If you don't own a voice recorder, you haven't entered the world of professional selling. Why did you include that? Well, our voice is, is, I believe, to be the most powerful tool we have in communication. And so often, we don't, we're not aware of how many crutch words we use, the ums and the ahs that are constantly pervading us. You know, there's so many elements to, you know, the way in which we speak, even the pacing, the pauses, that if we're not aware of how we sound, we're not aware of how we're perceived to the world. Because audio is, especially in today's world, is so, so incredibly critical. Mm-hmm. Like right now, we're able to communicate with no visual right now. Right. And you sound great. And I really appreciate that. And the, and the listeners do as well. Yeah. And so it's like being able to communicate and say, okay, I'm, and this is a really important thing too in sales, to assume nothing and communicate everything. So it's so easy for salespeople to assume that they know the full extent of the challenges that their customers are facing, especially in a complex sale. Mm-hmm. So one of the big, one of the big best practices is to assume nothing and ask everything, make no guesses and ask, you know, is that valuable to you? Wonderful. How might you use that? Even though I know exactly how I want them to use it, I want to know what they're thinking. What's in their head? Mm-hmm. Because I see life through a very different per- perception than they do. And so the more I can ask versus assume, the more success we'll have. Yes. And actually, you know, that's related to the concept in the book where you talk about when, when we want to authentically connect with other people, it requires us to let go of the need to be liked and start proactively liking other people. And I think people are always surprised when they ask these questions because it's always a little bit different. But can we jump to that and and explain this concept of how not trying to be liked is enormously helpful? Yeah, it's so part of the big mistake, and this comes back to some research that I did and some work they did for three years on, on helping salespeople make cold calls. And a salesperson making a cold call is very similar to somebody uh, courting the opposite sex. So if a man wants to ask a girl out, both are extremely awkward situations. And both of the receiving party is probably experiencing some level of, of uh, resistance and perceiving the hidden agenda that's actually there. Mm-hmm. Somebody calls you and says, hey, how's it going? Yeah, no, I just, just want to get, get coffee. It sounds like you're doing some great things. And, and uh, you know. Sounds like a LinkedIn the, pitch. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, the, the, that, in the same way somebody walks up to you and says, hey, you know, um, you know, a guy walks up to a girl in a bar. Hey, do you think brown or black shoes go better with this? And immediately she knows this has nothing to do with brown or black shoes. This has everything to do with something else. There's a hidden agenda there. Yes. And, you know, I've had <clears throat> single men, good men, come up to me afterwards. Renee, do these techniques work with meeting women? And the answer is absolutely they do. And the <clears throat> But you have to understand where you're coming from. He says, well, you know, I've always, you know, I've, it's true that nice guys finish last. I'm like, no. Nice guys are passive, manipulative liars. And they always look at me in shock. And I do that for a little bit of shock value. Sure. I say, well, th- think about it. I go, why do you like, why are you, why are you being nice to her? He's like, well, my mother taught me this. And another time I said, okay, if your mother taught you that, then why are you only nice to her? Why aren't you nice to her, 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 and her? And he's like, well, I'm like, well, you like her, don't you? He's like, well, yeah. I said, there's nothing wrong with liking someone. But she knows that you're lying right now. She's used to guys just being nice for no reason. 
And she knows that there's a hidden agenda there, that you're being nice because you have an expectation. And that's not a safe engagement. And the same is true in sales. Oh, you're being nice to me because you want, you just want to meet with me and, and get my business. And so now I was, you know, and the, the reason that they feel that way though, is because they have a hidden agenda that they want to be liked. And whether it's in sales, I want you to like my product. I want you to like my value proposition. If it's in dating, I want you to like me. And then if you don't like me, then I, f- I get the ultimate form of what we don't want, which is rejection to our core. It's painful because it's the rejection of who we are. Mm-hmm. And so we don't like doing those things because we fear rejection. But the, the irony is, is you only have rejection, even in part of it is because you have a hidden agenda. What mm. if we just removed the agenda and we stopped trying to get people to like us? And instead, we started proactively start finding reasons to like them. Yes. Yes, you're right. The main reason people don't do well at presentations and cold calls or in conversations is because they try to get people to like them instead of digging to find reasons to proactively like others. Such such great advice. Just let me ask one other question. The, 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 you write about how the skill of how to be a good conversationalist has become a lost art form for many. And you write, we assume that people need to feel like they are always right. But after years of facilitating thousands of conversations, I've learned that it's an inaccurate assumption. Talk about what you have learned. Yeah, well, people don't, they, they, we, we used to think that people needed to feel like right. Like the customer's always right. Customer's always right, exactly. Right. The customer's yeah. always right, or even your spouse is always right, and it's, it's not. And so we end up fighting about who's right and who's wrong. But what people actually want is to feel heard. I want you to feel like you understand me. And when somebody feels understood, Safety, psychological safety begins to be create, and then logic can be brought into play. Mm. And when that happens, you'll get people that can, you know, as long as you hear me, I can think like a business person too. Like, you know, somebody says, well, you know, like they're, they're looking at doing job cuts and well, the leaders aren't listening and they're just doing things because they don't want to give them, you know, too much platform because it could turn into a, you know, a complaining fest. Well, no, hold on. How about just listen and hear? Because what ends up happening? is when people feel heard and they feel valued, that's a limbic system thing, then in their neocortex can engage in critical thinking and be like, you know, we're business people too. We understand that you got to make changes. But we just want you to understand the effects that it has on us. Mm. And your spouse or something, whoever it is, your kids, they just want to be heard. I can tell you how many times I want to fight my, my kids on something and I finally am like, hold on a second, just listen. And then feed back what I'm hearing. Yes, show that you're listening and you've got a lot of great advice in here about how to how to actively listen yeah well the last thing i wanted to ask you about uh is on the very end of the book page 230 where you write a running joke among my close friends is the way i respond whenever someone asks what does it cost to bring you in (laughs) (laughs) tell us about that so it is a it's a running joke even with my clients because they know that I'm going to say this every right. single time. They know it's coming. They know it's coming, and I don't care that they know it's coming. Yeah. Somebody says, Renee, what's it cost to bring you in? My question is always, I'm sorry, to bring me in or not bring me in? And I smile. Now, if it's the first time you've heard it, it's one of two responses. One, it's, you know, sometimes they'll giggle and be like, ha, that's a good one. No, to bring you in. Or they'll say, confused, like perplexed, like, um, no, to, to bring you in. And I'll respond in the same way. I was like, well, I say that somewhat facetiously. And because here's the thing, if it costs you more to bring me in than it costs you to not bring me in, then, and I can't solve a problem, then 
it just makes no sense because there's no business value. I love it. But if there's a solution that I bring to the table that by me solving it provides a lot more value than the cost of actually bringing me in, then would you agree that the difference between the two would actually end up being a cost to you? Mm. And they say, well, yeah, that's very, very logos driven logic. They say, yeah. I said, so why don't we do this? Let's figure out. I don't have enough information to tell you what it would cost to bring me in, but why don't we figure out what we're trying to solve, what value we're trying to create, and then we'll pull out a pad of paper and a pen. We'll see a number that works for you and a number that works for me. And I promise you, my number would be much lower than the value created. And if I don't, you don't pay me. Is that fair? How can you say no to that? Well, it's virtually impossible. But the thing is, is, is when I do that, if I do get a no, it's, it's, it's usually for their lack of belief in whether I can do it. But the thing is, I said, the risk, we're both going to take a risk of time investment here. Right. And now this is a partnership entry. And, you know, so at that perspective, we can go, we can say, you know, and, and here's the thing, if they don't say, well, Renee, it's just, it's just this, I don't know if we actually, it's problem solvable. So then I go, okay, great. I go, here are four of my clients, three of my clients, whatever. Here's somebody that's in the same business as you are. Why don't you give them a call? Share with them what, what your concerns are, and they can share with you what it's been like to work with me. Now, if I can add something to this, I imagine this, Douglas, what if you could have a thousand foot soldiers, 2000 foot soldiers out there, and their job was to go to everybody in your market and tell them how amazing you are. And their job was to go to show up at meetings before you did. So you've got a thousand foot soldiers out there and their job is to go to every single meeting before you go there and tell them how amazing you are. And their job is to stay there after the meeting and tell them how amazing you were, remind them of your value proposition. And they're constantly doing that. Even as you sleep, they're telling people how amazing you are. How, how, how valuable would that be? Pretty valuable. Huge. That is what a personal brand does. Your, your personal brand shows up to meetings before you do. Your personal brand remains in the meeting long after you leave. It helps them remember who you are. And so when you have a strong personal brand and you're talking about price, your personal brand has gone out there and already built your value. Yes. So you're going to get less resistance on that. And so there's a lot of factors that come into play on that kind of conversation. Yes. Well, you ended really strong on this. And also it, it brought to mind how in certain sales situations, if the value hasn't been built in the mind of the prospect, they generally jump to what does it cost? What does it cost? And it seems like a great way to move that conversation a bit later by, Absolutely. by what you've outlined the, here. And the, the, when somebody does ask what it costs, it's just the first indicator that you haven't communicated value. And that's yes. an age old, true, true. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Renee, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? You know, that, that influence is a science and it can be learned. That that influence does not equal, and, and, and polish does not equal influence is another big piece. And, you know, influence is happening nonstop. You don't have to be in front of a stage or a group of people to be influential. Influence happens one-on-one. -on -one. It happens interpersonally. It happens through how you walk and your body language. So I want it to be approachable from all aspects, whether you're a seasoned professional or you're somebody that's just getting into the game. This book can give you a starting place and also a platform to jump and make do bigger things with. Oh, well said, well said. And all everything in the book can be learned and improved upon, much like a, a golf game. So what is one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book? 
One thing they could do today. That's a great question. Just, well, I think just when, to get them taking action while they're waiting for the book to arrive. You know, I would, I would do an honest assessment of what frames of reference are triggered when people say your profession. Ah, I would yes. do, I would do the three P's predict, mm. preempt, prevent. Mm-hmm. What can you predict about if you just go into every meeting a little bit more conscious and intentional? What can you predict is going to happen when you communicate your message? If you're communicating something difficult, what about that is going to trigger some of the emotional um, responses from people that are going to maybe create resistance? And then if you can identify those, what can you do to preempt it? Maybe it's a meeting before the meeting. Maybe it's uh, listening beforehand. Maybe it's an apology. Who knows? To help prevent what you predicted happening. So predict, preempt, prevent. Great advice. Uh, the three P's, predict, preempt, prevent. Just thinking about that. Fill it. Fill in the blank. You're going to find something that somebody's going to say, oh, gosh, I'm glad you thought of that. I, <laughs> it's almost like uh, in a sales situation where you think you already know the customer's problem, but yes. like you were talking about where, no, you, you need to ask because very often it's different. No guessing. <laughs> yeah. And they feel listened to. So exactly. looking back, uh, Renee, what books uh, have most inspired your work and career? Well, there's a lot. I think, you know, uh, from a sales perspective, my favorite book of all time is Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play by Mahan Khalsa. And he was a Harvard guy, worked with the Franklin Covey Institute. And from a complex sales cycle and understanding how to build a business case, he, I think, has the most powerful way of creating a business case for I, I tell people read the book, but also listen to the audio and listen to him read it. He's got a, a very unique voice, so you'll have to get used to that. Take you about five minutes to get used to his voice, but then you'll grow to love it because he he's just a very authentic, very brilliant way of thinking of business development. Oh, interesting. Let's get real or let's not play transforming the buyer-seller relationship written in 2008. Yep. That's why I love asking this question. <laughs> I always find out it's about another book. book I haven't read. Yeah. Well, terrific. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard of that you're looking forward to reading or see come out? Yeah, I mean I'm reading uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman's second book Noise, which is, you know, the the it's really the flaw in our human judgment. It's uh, the deep neuroscience of our judgment and how we make judgments. And so I'm excited to read that one. Oh, terrific. Great. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that you've mentioned and your sites and your LinkedIn profile and your, your Twitter account. And now a word to you, dear listener, please do me a big favor and reach out to Renee and congratulate him on the book and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. There's lots of ways to message him. Guests on the show have told me how much they enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners like you, and not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcast, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Amplify Your Influence, Transform How You Communicate and Lead. The author is Renee Rodriguez. Renee, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. It was absolutely my pleasure.
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.